You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, Blazers fans. Welcome to this episode of the Blazer Focus Podcast. I am Aaron Fentress. I cover the Blazers for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com. And I'm joined this time around by Joe Freeman, who covered the Blazers for 14 glorious seasons. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Fentress. You know, uh, it's a red letter day in the Freeman household because my six-year-old just got her first dose of the vaccine today. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so we're halfway there with her, which means we're a quarter of the way through our two kids. Our youngest is only three, so it's going to be well for her. But, man, it's a, it's a good feeling. As your kids are older, so you're, you're in, you already know about that life. Yeah, we've all gotten the shots. A while back, actually, and my youngest son just got his booster shot, so he's, he's 14. But, yeah, good to hear. Nice. Good news to hear. How's that roadie um, going for you? You're, you're still living and breathing. This is my first NBA road trip. I've made many NFL and NCAA football, college basketball road trips. Some of them have been week-long, bowl games, things like that, but you're in one place for that week. So this is my first time jumping from city to city to city. I began in L.A. Tuesday night, Phoenix last night. I'm in Houston right now. They play the Rockets tomorrow. The Rockets are 1-10, so I'm predicting. I'm going out on a limb here, Joe. The Blazers are going to get their first road win of the year. On Friday night at Houston, but we will get to basketball-related stuff first or, la- or later. Let's talk uh, right now about the big news around the Blazers: Neil Olshay uh, being investigated for creating hostile work envi- environments, uh, basically being accused by some people of berating employees, being disrespectful in a variety of different ways. Uh, the Blazers have hired a pretty prestigious law firm. I'll look for the name talking uh to look into this you know it's, it's a big time firm that, that that really goes after things like this and they're doing a major investigation into this matter who knows if neil olshay survives it or not we shall see for all we know the investigation will reveal that hey he may have done some things he shouldn't have done but everything's okay let's move forward or it could be worse and maybe they decide to try and uh terminate neil olshay but anyway you i've only covered the team for 14 months. My dealings, dealings with O'Shea have been fine. Uh, so I haven't had any problems with him in, in our interactions at all. Um, but you covered him for 14 years. So I guess my first question to you would be when this news broke and came out, were you at all surprised by these uh, alleged accusations against O'Shea in terms of his conduct in the workplace? 
Well, it's one of those things where you're uh, you, you're initially stunned because wow, this is a huge uh, you know development, and and they're allegedly huge accusations. Um, but uh, you know, having been so uh, embedded into uh, you know the entirety of his time from the beginning in Portland. Um, it wasn't a complete stunner. I mean, he, he certainly is a, uh, a person who I wouldn't say he's polarizing because I think that there are, is a large segment of, of people that he's, he's butted heads with and he's ruffled feathers and, and he's this kind of domineering, uh, presence who, who carries himself with kind of, a you know, uh, he's so self-assured that he's, he's arrogant, he's demanding, he's, a, he's abrasive, um, and there's no question, you know, he has a short fuse. He and I have butted heads countless times over the years. Um, but he's also, you know, well-liked and very well-respected by by many people. Um, I know someone in particular who has been with the organization for uh, a very long time. And, and this person reveres him uh, at a very high level and thinks he's he's you know incredibly smart incredibly good at his job and and he has um you know been good for the organization uh you know this person doesn't necessarily work quote unquote underneath him though and i i think because he's so demanding and he's so abrasive it, it definitely rubs people the wrong way you know i've um i you know when you asked me to come on the pod i wanted to make sure that i kind of composed my thoughts i didn't want to ramble and kind of say something stupid or unfair because you know, I wanted to be fair to him. Uh, I have covered, you know, during my 14 years, I covered four GMs. Um, you know, if you count Kevin Pritchard and you count Rich Cho, who was a GM for like 10 months. Um, and then Chad Buchanan was an interim GM for a year. They all had their own quirks and their methods and styles. And, um, you know, Neil was definitely uh, unique, uh, had a kind of a different, has kind of a different arrogance. I I remember writing about him in 2013, probably about 15 months after he took over the job, and he had kind of inherited a franchise in chaos. You know, three GMs in in a couple years. Uh, eventually, Nate McMillan was fired. He was this huge roster in transition with two lottery picks, and um, you know, he had he had kind of navigated that and and was turning the corner for the franchise was turning the corner. And um, you know, my, the point of my story was kind of like at such an unsettling time, he could kind of emerged as this stabilizing force. And in very quick order, he buttoned things up and, and he, he had this huge imprint and, and kind of really took over the organization. He, he overhauled the media guidelines uh, dramatically. He, he overhauled the roster, the coaching staff. He reshaped the strength and conditioning and training staff, which you may remember with Greg Oden and Brandon Roy, was such a controversial uh, and, and, you know, one might argue uh, faulty, faulty thing. He tweaked the video department. He spearheaded a $4 million remodel of the practice facility to upgrade it and to lure talent. He, he really um, – he recalibrated the entire franchise and, and the culture of the franchise. He, when that was his mission and his goal at the time, and I, I mentioned that in the story, is he wanted to stabilize it and make it this kind of, quote unquote, player first organization and create that stability. And uh, I think he succeeded very, uh, without debate on that. Uh, players enjoy playing for the Blazers. It, it has this perspective of outside you know, it's not L.A., it's not New York, it's not a glamorous, sought-after destination. But when players get in the weeds here and they play here, they end up loving it. And 
a lot of that is the culture that that Neil helped helped kind of create. Um, but that said, you know, all those GMs I mentioned before all had different approaches and they were more approachable uh, for people. You know, KP was kind of had this collaborative feeling where everyone has a voice in the room and everyone has a say and he wants to hear everybody's opinions. And I think Neil is much more decisive and much more authoritative than that. He, he kind of wants to be in control. Um, for example, I, you know, I mentioned there's no the media policy was was overhauled and that involved us not suddenly not being able to talk to assistant coaches, not being able to talk to Neil's assistants uh, without permission with him first. He wanted to know everything that was going in and out of the organization, where it was coming from. He really wanted to button button all that up. And and I think, you know, it, it was a different environment when Paul was around. Paul was uh, owner Paul Allen, an incredibly demanding owner. He his stories about him. And his interaction with his GMs were legendary. He he would text and email general managers back and forth, say after a game, two, three in the morning, like super late back and forth, asking about details, asking about, you know, plans and what's going on and why do we do this and why did we, you know, if there was a loss, why did you lose? And similarly around the draft, he just grilled front offices and, and in the playoffs with scouting reports, there's stories about you know, him wanting to know how they were going to cover the Steve Nash, Phoenix Suns in the pick and roll and front offices had to put together scouting reports and work, you know, spreadsheets and all that. And a lot of that obviously has fallen by the wayside uh, since owner Paul Allen's passing under Jody Allen, who is much more hands off and m much less involved in the day to day operations. Um and I kind of, uh, you've seen Neil kind of take on even more control in that, uh, in, in the more, you know, today, I guess, um, a little less checked, you know, kind of operating more unchecked. And um, I had a really close source tell me uh, right after Terry Stotts was fired, um, kind of, you know, criticized Neil's arrogance a little bit and and, and how he carries himself and, and he kind of said that he was operating and and I don't know how much weight you put into this, you know, because a lot of people lost their jobs around that time, but um, kind of said that he had surrounded himself with a lot of yes men and that no one in the front office kind of had a say or an opinion and that was kind of, kind of Neil's show. So, um, you know, I don't know that that has anything to do with what's going on because I don't know the nature of the accusations and, and I don't know if we ever will, but um you know, it does set the kind of the tone for for how he is because he is a, a demanding boss and a, an abrasive personality, a a confident guy. And um, you know, there's also this other element too, Aaron, and it's you know kind of a little backdrop on on who he is and how he got here. Is he doesn't lack confidence, um, which you've seen in his his press conference. You know, he's from New York. He, he earned his his chops, his basketball chops, in in Los Angeles, and I think. All of that in those big cities are a part of his DNA. Uh, but he also has this ingrained deep in him an underdog mentality. It's it's kind of rooted in his background. You know, he's not a he wasn't born in the basketball community. He was for many years an actor, a Hollywood actor. And I'm surprised that, that not every Blazers fan know this. We were talking about this at my weekly basketball game on Tuesday, and there were many guys who, who just didn't know about this, but you know, he was a soap opera actor. I think he was on Law and Order. He had a, a, a relatively, you know, solid little run there. Um, but and, and then he kind of pivoted to basketball, which was kind of his. You know, he 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 loved the sport as as a kid, and um, 
and just wanted to get in. And he kind of started on the agent side and as a workout player development kind of guy. But I think he's kind of been shaking this actor, quote unquote, background his whole career, at least internally, trying to kind of fight to be a part of the club or prove that he belong. And, uh, you know, sometimes that shapes how you approach people and, and, uh, situations. But, um, I, I know he's, he's a real, he's down. Blazers fans are down on him right now. And, and I, I do have a little bit of a disagreement with, with Blazer fans who thinks he's just a horrible GM and he has no place. And he's, I mean, he's had eight trips to the playoffs, one conference finals, three trips to the second round. Like he's established a pristine culture. He's, he's done a, a lot of really positive things and had a good run, uh, I would argue. Um, some might say he's wasted Lillard's prime and the roster is a mess and overpriced. And, you know, I get that argument, but it's it would be wrong to ignore all the success he's had. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I, it's, it's hard to kind of sum up um, the nature of, of things because, you know, you don't really know what, what the accus, what the accusations are and what he's, he's kind of been faced or put to the fire for. I will say this, we butted heads too many times to count over the years. And he would complain about a tweet or a headline on a story or a random line in a story. And we would get into it. He'd send me a chart or a graph or a line from my story and say, what are you talking about? And, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but I, I also, he handled, he gave me a lot of respect and, and, you know, he did have a softer human side and, you know, I'll never forget my father passed away in April and unprompted Neil sent me a very nice text message out of the blue saying how sorry he was and, and offering his condolences. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people don't do things like that. So I thought that was, um, kind of speaks to a little bit of, of his nature and, um, yeah, I don't know. I could I could go on and on talking talking about his personality. I don't know how long you want me to go on. I, I guess the last <laughs> last kind of thing I'll, I'll say is is again, you know, there were a lot of stories about uh, how he you know was tough to work with and had a bad temper and um, was demanding. And, and I encountered all that myself. But you do want to be fair to a person. Um, and he did, like I said, he did have kind of this other side. I, I this is super random, but on my honeymoon, I ran into Putty. From Seinfeld, mm. at, he was doing a traveling yeah. thing, and we were in Costa Rica. And he he happened to be staying at my hotel, uh, at the resort that my wife and I were at in Costa Rica. And uh, I ran into him in the pool and just kind of struck up a conversation with Putty. And uh, he had kind of asked about my job, and and so I told him what I did, and he blurts out Neil O'Shea, you know, in that booming deep <laughs> Putty voice. And I'm like, what, you know, Neil? And, and he's like, yeah, we used to have the same agent when they were actors, when, you know, when Neil was an actor. And uh, later on, Neil told me they would, it was back before direct deposit. And so they had run, go pick up their checks every Friday at the, at the office or whatever. And um, uh, it, a super wild story on my honeymoon. My wife lost her engagement ring in the Pacific Ocean uh, during mm. a, a snorkeling adventure. Don't worry, it's in, it was insured. But um, so I get back to town. And and had to text Neil for something, and he's like, "I hope you found the ring." And I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, I talked to you know, I think his name is Patrick Warbutton Buckle or Button, excuse me." And uh, he's like, "Yeah, sorry about that." And and you know, we kind of talked about that. And and then years later, uh, my my in laws had organized a family trip to Hawaii. It happened to be during the NBA draft, which was not good timing for me, but. I was able to take it off. And so I sent out kind of a braggy tweet of me on the beach with a cocktail on draft night. Like, did I miss anything? And Neil texts me in almost instantly and is like, you know, don't, don't lose your ring in the ocean this time and mahalo and all that. So 
you know, he does have this other side uh, to this kind of domineering, brace, uh, abrasive personality. But I don't, I don't know that a lot of people get to see it. You are listening to the Blazer Focus podcast. We'll be right back after a short break. Yeah, that's all. That's all fascinating. I mean, it's like with anything else. No one is all bad. Even like, mm-hmm. even if mm-hmm. someone is mistreating people or being bad, no one's all bad. Uh, and that's what's kind of interesting about this whole situation to me because I've heard I've heard these stories about him being maybe over the top with people or disrespectful to, to people or what have you. But at the same time, I can name all sorts of people I've worked for who I would love to smack the crap out of <laughs> because at some point, because at some point I felt like they got line with me and it's like, who are you talking right to Right here, man? Uh, you don't have to talk about me like that. I'm, you're not, wait, you're not, uh, wait, when you take my list. No, no, no Joe Freeman on the list. You're good. It's like you're Billy good. Madison. Like you're going to make your phone calls and cross people off. <laughs> um, so part of that, part of me is like, okay, so, you know, but even some of those people that I feel that way about, I can also say, plenty of good things about them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what seems to be happening here, the way it's being portrayed at, at least is that he targeted, uh, lower staff members and sometimes would just be completely over the top with how he talked to them, how he treated mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. creating anxiety in them. I mean, I, I've talked to people, um, I've talked to, I've reached out to numerous people. Some are willing to talk anonymously, some off the record, some, not at all, but they're like, yeah, this this is all true from what they knew. But they didn't want to talk about it. And so, you know, you hear things like, uh, you know, people at work trying to avoid him because he was just so mean. Um, employees just being filled with anxiety whenever he's around, uh, hearing him just go off on people. And just in situations where it was just completely, you know, over the top. And then, of course, Dan Dickow, former player who worked at the – Blazers for a while has been telling his story through his podcast and he appeared on Kazano's show about how he never got any firm direction from Neil Oshie about what his role could be as a coach or what have you. And so he went to Sarah Mensa and said, Hey, you know, she's, she's used to be the chief uh, operations officer, right? On the business yeah. Side. She was a, she was a VP. Yes. C- yeah. CEO, I think or CFO. Right. Yeah. CFO or COO. Uh, I can't remember. I don't, yeah. CFO is chief financial, isn't it? I don't think she was in charge of the finances. So yeah, I think she was CEO. Anyway, regardless, she was, she's a big wig. (laughs) She's now a Nike, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, he reached out to her to, uh, you know, see if there's any job she could, he could maybe pursue on the business side. And then he claims that Neil O'Shea completely just lashed out at him and just went off on him and called him lazy. You don't do, don't do, you don't have the, excuse me, a good enough work ethic. And, you know, you, you might never work in the NBA ever, and how dare you do this, and blah, blah, blah. And just this profanity-laced tirade. And Dick, I was like, look, man, I tried to get you to help me and to figure out what I could do, and I didn't get any direct views, or I just sent an email to somebody. I didn't, like, try and leave the basketball side necessarily for the business side. He was just looking for options because he's trying to find a career in the NBA. So, I mean, mm-hmm. so that's a story, and if, if, if his version is true, then it's like, wow, that, that sounds over the top for sure. But like you said, then there's other people who will say, he did X, Y, Z or what have you. And I, I have talked to people who have said that they've heard stories about him, but their dealings with him were all positive and on the up and up. But those people were all people that had pretty good titles and were pretty high up in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the chain 
of command, not command, I say, but the, the chain of employment there to where yeah. he probably wouldn't mess with those types of people. And continually people were saying that he went after lower level people. Now, again, the investigation is going to determine a, if that's true and B to what degree, you know, what degree are we talking about here? It's, it's just hard to really tell. Uh, one of the main people I talked to, you know, he, he made a statement to me that he said they nicknamed him the devil. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> sounds completely over the top. And again, it's like, okay, that's his truth. That's his, his feelings. That's his reality. Uh, what does that mean in the entire big picture? I don't know. There are people out there who think I'm the worst person ever, right? And I'm not. I'm the greatest person ever. So I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Did an so anonymous source tell you that? Yeah, a few anonymous <laughs> sources told me I was amazing. Uh, but no, I mean, I, it's just it's just hard when you don't have multiple people telling you things, and that's what the investigation's for. The Blazers are going to get to the bottom of this by talking to multiple people, right? And mm-hmm. I, I trust that they're going to determine based on these interviews if Neil Olshay should remain the GM or not. So the, the firm they hired is O'Melveny and Myers LLP, an international law firm based out of LA. They have about 700 employees. Um, they specialize in a lot of different legal areas, including labor and employment. Let me ask you this. Do you do you think it's and this is all speculation. I'm not saying this is a thing, but do you think this this all came about because one or two people complained and the Blazers are like, oh no, we better look into this? Or someone went as far as a threat in a lawsuit and the Blazers are like, well, we better look into this so maybe we can get ourselves ahead of this thing so that if something does go down, we can fire him for cause, save money on his contract, and separate themselves from his actions. It's a good question. I don't know. Uh, it seems like any investigation like this would have been uh, a byproduct of, of multiple complaints and or the threat of legal action. Like you don't normally just kind of pull this out uh, of thin air. Um, you know, and, and we are thankfully living in a, in a different uh, environment these days where you know, I think this type of thing happens 15 years ago or shoot, maybe seven years ago or five. I don't this know. This type, this type it, of stuff's been going on forever. Exactly. Like this isn't, it, it does not make, he's not unique for this. A lot of people have over the top domineering personalities and use profanity. Um, I mean, if you and I were having a phone conversation, there would be way too much profanity, but we're, we're recording a <laughs> podcast right now. So we got to keep it PC. Um, we got to have the director's just, cut. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's, just a, it's just a different uh, world we're living in, probably, you know, for the better. Um, and yeah. so I think that plays a role into it. Um, you know, I, I think that there's probably, uh, I, I've heard at least one theory that is like, you know, this could be a means to the end for the Blazers who might not have been, overly pleased with his off season or, 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 uh, you know, the, the way the coaching hire panned out and, um, the status of the roster and, and a variety of things. And they could be looking to cut bait. And, and as a result, you know, if there's all these investigation, you know, these, uh, complaints, you hire an investigation and there could be a with cause firing. Um, but I mean, it's, it's really tough to say because I don't know what the, what the investigations are you hope that it's not just terrible, terrible, terrible things, but it very well could be. I don't, I don't know. You know, there's, 
um, you hear a lot of rumors about a lot of things and you don't always know what's real and not. So um, with all these things, I can only go with what my experience is and what, what I hear from people I trust. And so um, right. it's, it's like you said, the people, people kind of see what they want to see, but the, it's odds are you kind of get both sides of a person at different times. Um, it, what's interesting about Neil is, is for uh, as much as, as a high profile job as he has and, and as uh, domineering of a personality and, 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 you know, how much control he has, he's really not out there much. He doesn't do a lot of interviews. He doesn't, his face isn't on television a lot. He's, his name isn't quoted a lot in articles, um, you know, in newspapers and on the interwebs. And that's by design, you know, Kevin Pritchard was always out there and he was this guy who wanted to be out there to, to let people kind of know the franchise was in good hands and the culture was changing and he wanted to be the face and the voice of, of, of things. Neil operated more behind the scenes and, and, you know, he talked to people more off the record and talked to people in background and for, for reporting and, um, you know, pulled all of his, all of his strings, so to speak, uh, outside the limelight. It was, very, I mean, he's kind of evolved into this person that talks publicly once or twice a year around the draft or free agency or around big right. signings, uh, you know, a handful of times at most. And so, um, and maybe we see why, because a couple of these recent performances have not gone very well uh, for his, for his image. And so, you know, maybe it's that temper that kind of gets in the way and, you know, he, he is a very smart guy. There's no question. And, he doesn't suffer fools like like he doesn't like incompetence and he doesn't like people. He doesn't like I mean, they say there's no stupid questions, but uh, we've been in a media scrum in an NBA locker room. There's definitely some some bad questions. He doesn't he doesn't put up with that very well. And so um, so I don't know. It's interesting, though, that a guy with his personality operates a lot in in, in the background, I think. So one person. OK, so one person told me. Basically, that O'Shea would berate, belittle, intimidate employees to the point of causing some uh, major anxiety and not even want to go to work. Definitely trying to avoid him at the practice facility. Um, and, and, and one of the things the person said was that it was really difficult for anyone to try and do anything about it because he was the guy. Mm-hmm. Right. It was like, who, yeah. had, who had more power in the organization than him? Well, mm-hmm. Paul Allen, right? Right. How are you going to get the Paul Allen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and the person, the person said also, you couldn't complain to a coach um, because the coaches were under the employ of O'Shea as well. So are they going to are they going to rock the boat to jeopardize their position? I mean, the feeling was sort of like you were sort of trapped because he was the, the head man in charge next to Paul Allen, and so that that's where like that's where things can go over the top where. It's one thing if you have moments where you, you know there's outbursts or there's an argument or there's a you know what have you, and there's an, it's another thing to continually seek out people that you know you can intimidate and mm-hmm. create a really bad environment. That's that's where like you know in this day and age, that can get you into a whole hell of a lot of trouble. I, I mean, I I worked at let me give you an example. I worked at a place recently. I'm not even gonna name it. I mean, people can probably guess what it was, but. You know, there, there, there was a guy who I used to notice every once in a while, he'd just be a little too friendly with a certain woman at, at the place. And the woman was a little uncomfortable about it. And this was right before, God, was this right before Weinstein? I can't even remember what it was, right before, what it was before. It might have been right around then. No, or Matt Lauer. 
Anyway, one of those two things. And then this woman told me that that dude, it just stopped 100% because the climate had changed. You can't be flirty. You can't reach out and touch their arm, you know, which there's no reason to do in the natural course of your life, right? How many female colleagues have you just reached out and touched their arm just for no reason? Unless you're a really tight friend, you're like, hey, how you doing? Or whatever, you have that relationship. But the point being is that once the environment changes, once the atmosphere changes, then you have to change your your conduct, especially as a person in power, because people in power who who perform badly and do uh, you know bad things to employees are in the crosshairs now. You will get you will get hammered in, in a nanosecond, and so I just wonder if it's if it's a situation where you know if some people he did this to are just retaliating because they know the environment's changed, and maybe he actually has curbed some of his. Uh, conduct as of late but that maybe in in this context with these people who've, who've brought this into the into the, the light it's just too late um so i don't know i mean it's it's all over the place one thing i have to put i, I have to mention here though i told i talked to antonio harvey a former player on the record he actually posted something on facebook where he was just ripping neil o'shea calling him a con man etc he said neil never did anything to him but he said and i quote i know what happened to other people because i heard about it People talked about it all the time. I can't name the people, obviously. But what I can tell you is I heard a lot of rumblings about how he wanted to control and manipulate. If he didn't do what he said, he would just completely fly off the handle. He hated to be questioned. He hated to be second-guessed. These are all the things that I consistently heard coming from people who dealt with him on a day-to-day basis. So, does that sound like someone who's over the top? To me, it does. But it also sounds like someone who also was in control, in charge, and maybe was very demanding. You know what I'm saying? And so that leads me to my next point, then I'll, I'll let you go, I'll let you talk, is that I talked to someone else who kind of painted the picture of, yeah, he could be that way, he could be demanding, and maybe a little uh, politically incorrect in terms of how he went at people, but, but he was still a good person, and a lot of people still liked him and revered him at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of like, like I said, it's kind of like depending on who you talked with and what the nature of their relationship <clears throat> with him was, you know, you would, some people you would, you would hear about complaining about him to some people and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's incredible. And, and right. it just, it, it, yeah, I don't know if it's like you said, it's the status of where you rank in the hierarchy or uh, how often you encounter him and in what environments. Um, it's kind of a tough uh tough thing to discern there. Um, really depends on the person, but I mean, there's no question that he was, uh, he, he was a demanding or is a demanding person. I mean, he, he's under a lot of pressure obviously. And, um, you know, he worked for a demanding owner for, for the majority of his time there. And he wanted to, to make this team a winner and a champion. And, you know, it kind of does go back to Blazers fans views of him and, the idea that he doesn't work hard or that he isn't good again, you can find fault with a ton of his moves and a ton of his picks. You can also point to the the playoff appearances and the culture and the play some of the playoff success and um, and a lot to to counter that. So it just depends on, I guess, your your view of things and and your view of of him and your view of the team, I guess. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, 
you know, you, you asked me if I was surprised, uh, you know, on the one hand, no, but on the one hand, you know, these things, it's not like we hear about this every day and with, right. with every organization, obviously this is coming on the heels of the allegations, um, with the Phoenix suns right now and, and one of their minority owners. And, and so it's, you know, it, it, like I said, it's it's a little bit of a different time and a different uh, working environment, thankfully, because uh, nobody wants to be around a bully and no one wants to be, uh, you know, felt threatened by a bully or felt stifled professionally because of a bully. And so, um, you know, I'm not calling Neil a bully, but if that is the environment that was that was going on, something needs to you know, something needs to change. Definitely. As far as him as a GM goes, and, and you know, fans w- will want any reason to get rid of him. I mean, fans don't like him for a variety of reasons. The whole performance thing in terms of the team is still funny to me. I mean, some people accuse me of being an O'Shea apologist. I'm not a, like, I, I don't know Neil O'Shea that well. I've never met him in person. The first time I ever talked to him on the phone was last March. My view of the Blazers as a franchise began before or began with the the, the disintegration of the Pippen, Rashid, Damon years <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and coming out of that and, and basically feeling like it was going to be extremely difficult for the Blazers to ever contend. When they got lucky and got the Odin pick to go along with Roy and Aldridge, it was like, oh, crap, there you go. There's your luck. You got three lottery picks, number one pick. I mean, if you if Odin, excuse me, if Roy stayed healthy, you kept Aldridge, obviously he probably would have stayed. And if Odin had turned out to be David Robinson or Patrick Ewing, they're winning titles. <laughs> And everyone's yeah. happy, right? But yeah. that falls apart because of injuries. And so now you got to start over with with Aldridge. And it was like, it's going to be really, really difficult for the Blazers to ever go out and land a major free agent to make this happen. Um, and they got Lillard. That was great. That was that was a good step. Well, they got Aldridge Andre. Leaves. They got Andre Miller first. They got Andre Miller first. And so they they were still under Nate. And and there was Rich Cho. You know, he went and got Gerald Wallace. Um, there was that kind of right. That there, run there was. There. There was these little – my point being is that in terms of trying to build a contender, you're not going to win a title with Andre Miller or Wallace. Like yeah. Lillard is like a piece where you could say maybe we can win with this. But then Aldridge turns around and leaves, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're building around a two, a six-foot-two guard, which has only happened twice, literally in 50 years, as the team won a championship with their best player being a small guard. So it's just a it's just a hard situation, especially being in a small market. So that was always my thing. Is like I think I think what happened, like you mentioned all the play, the playoff runs. They had won a playoff series in 14 years when they beat Houston. Mm-hmm. They hadn't been to the West Finals in 19 years when they made it in 2019. The last time they'd been there was 2000, mm-hmm. right? These should be viewed as monumental accomplishments, but instead they were viewed they were viewed as, oh, well, that's all they did. <laughs> well, yeah, mm-hmm. that is all they did, but that's all they did in the last 35 years, like other than that 2000 run. So it's like you have to be you have to be realistic. And I don't believe Blazers fans as a whole are realistic. I think they think we have Lillard, we should be winning titles. Go get Kawhi. Go get Durant. Draft this. Do that. Do that. And it's just unrealistic. So that's my thing about him as a GM. I'm not saying he's a great GM, but based on where I saw the team before they got Lillard to what they've done, making the playoffs eight out of nine years, whatever it is, is to me above what I expected the franchise to be able to do. And they were able to do it without ever getting a marquee free agent. Meanwhile, virtually every team that's won a title in Lillard's era has gone out and been able to get LeBron, Bosch, Durant, um, trade for Anthony Davis, go get LeBron again, go get LeBron again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so anyway, it's just, yeah. And, and, it's a you bag, know, but. talking to agents and, and talking to, to players over almost 15 years, Neil had a good reputation and good, a good relationship almost universally with agents and, and with players. Um, 
And so I think that's hard to do. And his background kind of helped him understanding the agent side and, and really kind of fostered a good deal there. And I think a lot of that helps has helped him in his role, uh, you know, as GM. And um, it's hard to get a lot of to universally be respected by agents. And I remember when when LaMarcus bolted uh, and he remade the roster on the fly and signed Aminu and signed Ed Davis and put, you know, gave the keys to CJ and Dame. Talking to agents around that time, they were like, what he has done on the fly to to take a roster and completely retool it, having not knowing or going into it, not knowing if your best player and your, your cornerstone is going to leave or stay is nothing short of miraculous and really speaks to his ability. And, you know, that team, which I think we might talk about a little bit later when we get into Blazers into the weeds, went on to the second round of the playoffs, stunningly had a late season run and, and helped by some injuries in the first round advanced in the playoffs. And, you know, little accomplishments like that uh, really speak to, you know, the job that he did on the plus side. Um, I do think that he did. He he is stubborn, though. You know, I, I think there's a not a ton of GMs who would have, have kept the Dame CJ pairing as long as he has. Uh, and, and, you know, he has been resolute to me over the years that he has no intentions of breaking them up. And, and anything else is, is just rumor and innuendo. And um, there's been some other moves that I think he's been a little stubborn on. And, um, you know, he's, he's always really wanted to chase from his very first, uh, decision, his first free agent year. Well, a- after, after his first season was Roy Hibbert, he signed to a, uh, he's always chased the, this big, he wanted a big guy, you know, just a big guy in the middle. And, and he signed Roy Hibbert to an offer sheet and he left. He tried to sign Greg Monroe. He, he, um, in his canter. Yep. He signed in his canter twice. Well, traded for him. Yeah, signed him twice. Signed well, Robin Lopez. But they, he, they offered Cantor a contract when he was with OKC, and OKC matched, right? Oh, right. Yeah, so three times. Yeah. So three yeah. times he signed him. Well, I guess the last time he traded for him with Boston. So, yeah. Right. Um, Robin Lopez. Uh, Hassan Whiteside. Are you kidding? Like, right. <laughs> you go on down, and, and, and so it's like, for whatever reason, he's got a – he's – that's one trait that he has that I think, especially in the modern game. I mean, I don't know how much you necessarily you need a big, but some of the some of the moves he made in hindsight were you're like, really, that's where you put all your you know your eggs in that basket. But um, you know, and I know a lot of people are going to say that Chad Buchanan was behind the, the Dame uh, the Dame drafting, and and others yeah. say that uh, he wanted somebody else. I've heard all manner of things from all manner of sources. But the fact remains that Neil O'Shea was in the seat when Damian Lillard was drafted. So he is going to go down as the guy that drafted, um, you know, the, arguably the best player in franchise history the next year. I, I don't – there. you know, you could say maybe he should have uh, signed uh, I'm, I'm Stifle Tower. I'm, spa- I'm spacing on uh, Utah Jazz's fine French center. But could have drafted him instead of CJ. You know, you, you could – They could have drafted Giannis instead of CJ. Well, of course. But, I mean, in yeah. 14 or whatever, again, could have drafted Giannis. Yeah, but who, who – yeah, exactly. Who knew? Yeah, so – so, yeah. but you could go down and cherry-pick things in every draft. But, you know, CJ right. was a good For draft. For every jam, he's, too. He's a yeah. good player. Dame is an yeah. all-world player. He has made a lot of – good moves and, and he really excels uh you know in the margins finding that second and third tier guy that helps you get to the playoffs it helps you win and 
you know, I think a lot of people will will say he couldn't lure the superstar to Portland, and I think that's fair. But I also think it's fair to say who has, you know, when, who has, yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> exactly. It, it, it's it's one of those deals, and and you know, he identified that very early in his tenure, and he decided that he wasn't going to be banking on free agency when the right opportunity came. The Paul George, he would have his guys go try to recruit the heck out of him. When Melo opportunity came, he would have his guys go try to recruit the heck out of him publicly. And, and, you know, but, but those chances either didn't work out or were few and far between. And so, you know, he focuses on the draft, which he's been pretty strong at. And he focuses on on getting the, the right free agent that that can that will come here in the right circumstances. And so, um, you know, it, it is a dispute I have with many Blazers fans. I don't think Neil's perfect by any means. And um, but but I think he has has and is a, a good general manager from a basketball evaluation standpoint, from a talent evaluation standpoint, from, from a culture building standpoint in a, in a, in a lot of those ways, it's just some of the ancillary stuff and, and maybe his temper and, and maybe his stubbornness and his arrogance that, that got in the way um, when it's all said and done. But um, do you want to keep talking about this? You want to switch over to. Well, I, uh, I, I, want, I have one quick point. You mentioned the CJ thing. So, it's been my understanding that he doesn't want to break them up unless it's a, a knock, a, a knock it out of the park deal. Mm-hmm. Like if he could have gotten Kawhi and Kawhi would resign, he would do that. If he couldn't got gotten Harden and gave up draft picks and Harden would resign, that he would do that. Obviously, he would trade him for, you know, Kevin Durant or LeBron or someone of that caliber. Siakam. But it had to be, huh? Siakam. Oh, Siakam. He, yeah, there was a, some silly report in, in the summer that, yeah, the Blazers turned down Siakam. I don't buy that for. A, a, I don't buy that out because that would be the perfect fit uh, for them, you know, but to do it for Ben Simmons, I think there is some concern there. Ben Simmons is a child. Right? Yeah. He's image. He's a petulant child. He's immature. Now, wait a minute. Now you're back. Now you're back on it. We, no, you're, no, no, you're no, 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 wait, no, no, Joe, 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 Joe. Yes, sir. Aaron Fentress would make that trade in a millisecond <laughs> because I believe Dame and Billups could help raise Ben Simmons up to be more of an adult. Okay. But I could totally see where someone in the NBA, who's like a GM, Freeman? who does this for a, li- a living, might say, yeah, might say, eh, I don't know if I would do that. And here's the reasons. Because Ben is a child. I, I'll admit, I'm Team Ben. I think they jacked over Ben's. Anyway, we're, we're digressing on this. But my point is, I'm Team Ben. I would do it, but I could see where someone might not. Um, but I would criticize that all day. You're, you're never going to win a title with those two as your best two players. I've said that since... CJ burst onto the scene, 15, 16 season. I'm like, this is great. Yeah, that's that's good for them. They should have sucked that year and gotten the lottery pick. They could have gotten Jalen Brown. They could have gotten Brandon Ingram, or they could have gotten Ben Simmons. Instead, they overachieved, cost them getting like a guy like that, and now you got your best two players, your Damon CJ, two small guards. You're never going to win a title with those two ever. I'll say it right now. The Portland Trailblazers will never win a championship with their best two players being Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. I don't care who hates me for it, who lashes out at me about it. I don't here. It's just not going to happen. Why? Because it's only happened once in 50 years, and that was the Bad Boy Pistons, and these aren't the Bad Boy Pistons. Anyway. I will I will say, I, I, I disagree. They're too little. I, I think, They're too I think, little. I think you can surround <laughs> them with the right players that can. And and look, they've gotten to a The right role players? Part. The right just, role just, players? Just, just wait. You can surround... No, I didn't say that. I said the right players. You can put the right people around them and make them succeed. I do agree with if you. If they're better on, than them. We, but you just need to put the right people. If Nurk, if it was good Nurk all the time instead of what Nurk has become, it's a different team we're talking about right now. It's it's Nurk's that's the problem. It's not CJ, but that's a tangent. Uh, 
I do agree with you that the the year that we talked about, which was one of Neil's greatest success stories, which was that that team after the the blow up that went to the second round of the playoffs. Neil didn't think that team was going to the second round of the playoffs. Mm. That team was was built as a transition team that had pieces that would be a part to plug in a third guy there. Um, right. You know, in a lottery pick. And that mm-hmm. went south on him. You know, they got mm-hmm. to be a little too good for them. And that mm-hmm. that definitely surprised Neil. And so, yeah, yeah that was uh, they were a little too good there. But let, let's 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 focus back here as, as we kind of okay. wind down here for the last <laughs> last 15 or 20 minutes. So of this is is, you know, this is a team right now that that it seems to be searching. Uh, and, and I think outside of anybody who maybe uh, wore some Pollyanna glasses or something should have expected there to be some growing pains on a team that features a, a drastically different bench and different role players and, and a new coaching staff that there's going to be some lumps, but, you know, obviously they, they not only can't win on the road, they haven't won on the road. Um, yeah, de- defense is, is very Jekyll and Hyde depending upon their location. And it, it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like Billups is kind of keeping things positive and guys have the right mindset and, and they believe they see progress, but, but what are you, what's the kind of the tenor of the team? Where's, where is this team at right now? What what are guys talking about uh, as they kind of navigate these you, choppy waters? You know, that road trip where they lost all three at Philly without Embiid, Tobias Harris, or Simmons, and they lost to Charlotte, and then they lost to Cleveland with no Kevin Love or Larry Market. And not that those two are major stars, but they're two of their better big guys. When they lost those three, that was pretty shocking to me because I was coming off of beating the Clippers, beating Memphis, and then prior to that, Wax and Phoenix, right? I did not see that coming. Uh and then, of course, they've lost the first two road games on this trip. Um, what's interesting is that they're 5-1 and one at home, 0-6 oh on the road. Their defensive rating at home, the last time I looked, I, I looked before last night, I think, uh, they were fifth in the NBA for home games in defensive rating. On the road, they're dead butt naked last. <laughs> That's Which to me is just fascinating that you can be that different. And it's not opponent. Like, you can't say, oh, they've played – NBA contenders on the road only. No, the, the, the level of competition has been pretty similar. Uh, so what, what's happening is after every game, like these last two nights, for example, we're asking a lot of the same questions in the media. They're giving a lot of the same answers. And there's a, there's a sense of frustration. Uh, after Clipper game, it was Dame and, and Powell. And then after this Phoenix game, it was Dame and CJ. And they're frustrated because they just lost the game, right? And so this sort of like, yeah, we can make these mistakes and communication and we got to work on our, our, our help defense and rotating over and we're making these mistakes and blah, 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 blah. It's just, you know how the NBA is. It becomes repetitive, right? It's the same, it's the same thing all the time. So not all the time, but most of the time. So anyway, I asked Damien, I'm like, so, but are you seeing progress? And then he was like, oh yeah. Like, like first he's like, man, we're just doing this wrong. We're doing that wrong. There's this and that. And we got to do this and that. And I go, but are you seeing progress? Oh yeah, I'm seeing progress all the time. <laughs> Like, we're getting better. We're way better than we were. Like, it's completely flipped, okay? So then I asked Billups last night about what Damon said about seeing progress. And and, uh, Jason Quick asked, too, about sort of the line between uh, being patient and the urgency. And Billups basically said, you know, I want to win every game. But at the same time, I know where we are. And it's still a work in progress. We still have a lot of work to do. Like he feels like now they've gotten to the point where they're playing hard on defense the vast majority of the time. So now they got to shift over to playing smarter on defense. Hmm. And it just takes, you know, one, it takes time to learn the schemes, 
Two, it takes time to trust each other and learn the schemes in the second, third level of you know the other team running their play. And then three, you're playing against NBA players who know <laughs> are trying to beat your schemes like you're trying to beat their schemes. So you're going to give up points. Uh, but again, he said, I like where we are. Like, I really do. It, it may seem weird because we're losing. You know, I would like to, he said, I would like to win some road games or, or a road game. It's kind of funny the way he said it. I laughed. Uh, but Dame said the same thing. It's like, you know, we we see what we do in films. We see the conversations we have. We see the little micro growth. But then a game happens and we lose by 10. And I'm paraphrasing here, but we lose by 10 and everyone's like, oh my God, they still suck. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we lost, but we still are seeing the growth to get where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And, and and then you look, to, okay, what's the evidence of that? Well, they have the fifth best defensive rating in the league at home. They're five and one at home. They beat some good teams at home. So it's there, but they just have no consistency. Now, I don't know how consistent they're ever going to be. I don't know if this means they're going to win 50 games. They're just going to be 41 and 41. We don't know yet, but I do think the team deserves time, which brings me to that 2015-16 season you mentioned where Aldridge had left, CJ steps into the forefront. They're 11 and 20 at one point. They're 19 and 18 and 26 at another point. And then all of a sudden they win 12 of 13 or 11 of 12 or something like that. And boom, they're off. And then they end up making the playoffs. And you covered that team. I mean, wasn't there some issues there where they were trying to fix the defense and then finally it clicked? Yeah, uh, a couple things, uh, and I'll get back to your question. You yeah. typically, and the season we're about to talk with notwithstanding, you typically know who a team is, and this is widespread in NBA circles. You know who a team is by Christmas. And so it's usually around then when a team has established itself as, hey, this is going to be a contender, this is going to be a playoff team, this is going to be a lottery team, this is going to be a team built on defense or offense, whatever. Usually by then, an identity has taken taken hold. So they have about a month, month and a half to to get it together. And, and you know, a new coaching staff, new players, new defensive scheme, new focus on defense, new offense, you know, on and on and on. That takes time. The idea that you're going to snap your fingers and this team was going to be, um, you know, uh, one of the uh, top five teams in the West is, is fool's gold. But um, going back to your, your question, it, it's an interesting parallel. Um, it was an almost a virtually an entirely new roster. I think Dame, CJ, and Myers might have been the only holdovers. Um, maybe there was one other that I'm spacing on, but um, and uh, it was a team that you know was expected to be a lottery team. Um, but they and and so they kind of sputtered along, trying to figure it out and losing and winning and losing and winning. It was it was very inconsistent. And then they they would have five game losing streaks and six game, and then they'd win three. And so it was very up and down. Right around the All-Star break, um, maybe a little bit before then, uh, Terry, the old former coach Terry Stotts got the team together, and he said, you guys need to play better defense. And he, he, there was this big film session. Uh, I remember writing about it, and it was like, you know, you need to do this. But it was very, uh, it was a hold guys accountable type of moment. We pointed out Alan Crabb, or he pointed out Damon C.J., or he po- pointed out whoever. And, and we need to do this and that better. And it was, look, if we do all these things, you're going to be a playoff team. And and I remember Ed, talking to Ed Davis about this at the time, and he's like, at that meeting, Ed Davis looks over at assistance coach Jay Triano and was like, really? Playoffs? Like, it was <laughs> a joke, about? you know. And that was why I love my guy Ed, because he kept that, he kept, he kept it real. He always keeps it real. <laughs> 
and uh, and sure enough, they they caught fire. I think they won ten of eleven or eleven of twelve. They went on to make the playoffs. They were one of the hottest second half, uh, you know, post All Star break teams. Uh, things kind of came together. They figured it out and went on, beat a hobbled Clippers team and made it to the second round. Um, I think they got smoked by the Warriors, but it was still like it was a it was a monumental achievement for a team that you could tell was kind of on the rise. And um, I guess it is a lesson in that you need to be patient, but that's one thing with Blazers fans right now is I don't I don't know how much patience they have after the offseason that they've had, the summer that they had, the the, the coaching search debacle, um, just how that – not that it was a bad hire, but just uh, how the search played out and the fallout from that and um, and, and just they're, they're wanting change with this roster and not getting it. And so, um, you know, I, it'll be yeah, interesting to see it, but, how long Blazers fans hold on to this. But here's, here's the thing for me, and, like, whenever I see – Someone bring up, oh, the defense isn't there yet. Well, one, like I said, they're they're, home, they're good at home, they're bad on the road. They're better overall. There's no denying that they're better overall. Mm-hmm. But the number one problem by far, and it, it's not even remotely a discussion. It's not coaching. It's not rotations. It's not the roster. It's not the defense. It's the fact that your best player on most nights has been a liability. Like, like, to the point where it almost would be better in some of these games he played that he did not play. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying a statistical fact. He's shooting 38% from the field. That's up because he's gotten better the last three games. Like, I think he's turning it around. But he was down around 33, 34 from the field. He's up to 25% on threes. He's up to 25%. He was lower than that. He's only averaging 20 points per game. Last year, he averaged 28.8, and he's taken almost exactly the same amount of shots. His uh, effective field goal percentage is 44.2%. Last year, it was 55.4. He's not getting to the free throw line. 3.3 attempts per game, making 85% as usual. But last year, 7.2 attempts. The year before that, 7.8. So everything about your best player, he has gone from an elite point guard to like just statistically, he's a bottom ten point guard in the league, and so if that if your best player that you're relying on to be your guy is a detriment, that drags everything else down. It doesn't matter what else you're doing because he's killing you on nights when he goes ten of twenty seven or two of eleven on threes. Like it's just crazy. So for me, if he had been if he had been normal Lillard instead of five and seven right now, I honestly believe they would be like eight and four. I don't think that's an exaggeration. He even said himself after the Cleveland game. He said, if I was doing what I normally do, we, you know, we pull ahead in this game, we win it. And he's right because he was awful that night. So that, that's why fans need to chill because fans are, love Dame so much, they should know better because they know they're not seeing the same Dame. So to dog on anyone else or anything else right now when you know he's not playing up to par – is disingenuous to me. So if he turns things around and they start getting 29 points a game at 45% and 39% on threes, then they're going to start winning games, period. And it doesn't really matter about the defense because we saw them win games last year with the 29th rated defense in the league. <laughs> they had the tie for fifth best record in the West. You know what I'm saying? So until he gets it together, nothing else really matters to me, to be honest with you. Yeah, and you know, I'm not knee deep in the weeds obviously as as you are and like I used to be, but I can assure you this after watching Dame for the entirety of his career is that he will at some point be Damian Lillard that we know. And that's that is a borderline promise as long as he's not hurt or injured or 
you know, laboring through some type of ailment that we don't know about, uh, he's going to reemerge and he will be a force. It's just a matter of when, not if with him. See, and that's the thing. Imagine that. Imagine if all of a sudden Damien's back, he just goes on a tear. He's having like 38 a night for like a, like two weeks. And we've, he's done it before, right? And the defense picks up on the road and now they have a 12th rated defense in the league or whatever. Damien played an elite level. The defense in the top 15, close to the top 10. That's where you win eight out of 10. That's where you win, you know, 11 out of 15. That's where you, you start building those victories and start looking like a legit, you know, playoff team. And so since we know that they have the potential to be better defensively and we know that their best player is not, not right, I think there's a reason for optimism that they are going to, at some point, flip the switch and it's all going to come together and they're going to rattle off those types of win streaks. And, you know, talking about patience is, is when you have a whole new coaching staff that's in, instilling something completely different and change, trying to change the mindset of, a, of an offensive-minded team, it takes time. Like, it's just, a, it's just a reality. And nobody wants to hear that. And I don't know how good this team is going to be and where it's going to be at the end of the year. Um, but where they are now is not who they're going to be, you know, a month from now. Because it, it, it just it, – they've got to figure – they've got to get used to playing this style, playing under this coach. And it's not just on-court stuff. It's, it's the changes behind the scenes that we don't know about that a lot of these players – have grown accustomed to for X amount of years that, you know, practice routines or film sessions or whatever is going on back there. Everything's changed because it's a new voice and a new method and, and, and new plans. And so, I mean, anybody that's changed jobs or, or, you know, picked up new hobbies, like it takes time to get comfortable in, in a new role or a new job. And, and it takes time for a team like this to kind of evolve into who it's going to be. And so, um, We'll see. I don't, you know, again, I don't think the team that we see now is going to be the team that, that it's going to be in January. 100%, man. What else is crazy, too, is that they're completely healthy. Like, the, the injury report since Snell came back has been clean. Mm-hmm. That's very, that un, very unblazers-like. <laughs> I know. And to have that and, and be struggling at the same time, it's like, man, this is the time when you should be racking up wins. And Oh, one more quick thing. I just have to, I just have to put this out there. Um they, one thing that's been killing them on the road is that they routinely are allowing other people's bench players to come in and just light them up. So listen to this run right here. Uh, they, okay. Gets the Clippers when they lost 116.96. Kennard goes 8 for 10 from the field, 6 of 7 on 3, 23 points. Okay, fine. They go to Charlotte, P.J. Washington, 8 for 8 off the bench. Oubre, who's a good player, but only averaging 12 points per game, goes for 26 on 8 for 14. They go to play Philly with no Ben Simmons, no Tobias Harris, no Embiid. Some guy named George Georges Yang, a young, whatever, 21 points off the bench. <laughs> he was averaging 13. He killed him in the fourth quarter because when the Blazers went small, they went with a four-guard lineup to end the game. Dame, C.J. Powell, and uh, Simons, and then Nurk. And so the Philadelphia 76ers just attacked, you know, bigger guys against small guys, and this guy was one of them, and they were able to hold him off. Cleveland, no love, no uh, marketing. Dylan Widler, averaging four points per game, comes in and drops 13, a lot of them critical down the stretch. Uh, then they lose the Clippers the other night. Isaiah Hardenstein comes off the bench, goes six for seven in 17 minutes, uh, kills him. And then last night, no DeAndre Ayton, Lavelle McGee, 
and Frank Kaminsky combined for 45 points and 15 boards. It was like playing Wilt Chamberlain out there in terms of the stat line. Kaminsky had a 31 points, a career high off the bench. And even, and Billups even like was like, you know, we didn't think we didn't think Kaminsky could do that to us. He proved us wrong. And Dame was like, we have to adjust our game plans so that when guys come off the bench that you're not used to to beating you, you don't let them play to their strengths. Because everyone in the NBA, if you let them feel comfortable, like and this is true, everyone in the NBA can put up numbers if you give them the shots they want and you give them the minutes. That's why they're in the NBA. It's top 450 players on planet Earth. Um, so that's another thing that's killing them is that bench players for opposing teams on the road are kicking their tails, <laughs> which is contributing to their problems. Stats. Anyway, that was a fascinating stat. List of stats. Nah, man. Stats. I like stats. I no All right. Anything else, Joe? No. What needs to happen? No you got a prediction? On Neil? <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I don't either. I just, like, my thing is, I mean, I've talked to some people about it, but, like, you know how it is when, you, when you're dealing with a controversial subject, you just have that natural instinct, instinctive feel that you need gosh dang I keep Mm -hmm. my mic keeps dropping you need corroboration you know what I'm saying no no, and a lot too too many people in our society don't care about corroboration someone said it it must be true whereas when I hear something I'm like okay I need to get more before you know you're gonna just say something's a fact and uh so, you know, the people I've talked to who say they feel Neil treated them unfairly or others, I believe them. And then I also believe the people who say he, he was a good guy. I think the investigation is going to reveal more than we'll ever Yeah, we'll find out know. soon enough. And, I will uh, say it does, it does not look good for Neil, that's for sure. Goes. Yeah, that's true. All righty. Well, I guess the next time uh, I, I drag go. you on here, we you might be talking there, about either Neil survived or a new GM. I will. I got Houston Rockets Friday night and then to Denver on Sunday and then back home Toronto Monday. Uh, thanks for joining me, Joe, on the Blazer Focus Podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please click the subscribe button so you can catch us next time and give us that five-star rating. That's, I know you just love Joe so much. You can give five stars for him if you want. You don't have to give me any stars. You can help me about Joe. And we'll catch you next time on the Blazer Focus Podcast.